0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. Click onto any social media site used by people from China and you'll be bombarded by pictures of food. People love to show off what they've been eating and to share recipes. This trend reveals something significant about China's economy. As the disposable income of China's middle class grows, people want to eat better. Of course, many people still have a taste for traditional dishes, but there's also a craving for food made from foreign ingredients, such as premium ribeye steak from the United States or sweet pumpkins from Japan. Today, we're going to be talking about the social and political implications of this change in eating habits. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast, Professor Bob Ash from the SOAS China Institute. Bob, can you start by explaining to us how this growing affluence has impacted China's diet?
1: Nice to be back, Duncan, thank you. Um, There have been good and there have been bad consequences. And the good news, very simply, is that in the last 40 years, since, since beginning of the 1980s, as incomes have risen, growing affluence has enabled more and more people to fulfill their dietary aspirations. And the underlying story here is perfectly clear because of these rises in disposable incomes which are unprecedented material living standards including diets have changed very dramatically initially the main beneficiaries were city residents and those living in the uh, eastern coastal provinces but by the time we get to the first decade of, of this century the benefits of growing affluence also started to spread rapidly in the rural sector. So if we kind of try to put this into specifics, then as diets have become more diversified, direct consumption of grain has fallen. The reduction in carbohydrates has been offset by a rise in protein and fat intakes. And so the consumption of red meat, poultry, fish, milk, and dairy products has steadily increased. That's the good news. But now the bad news is that not not all of the consequences have been positive. You know, the traditional Chinese diet was characterized by a low intake, necessarily so because of poverty, uh, a low intake of animal source foods. And that was regarded, has long been regarded as a very healthy diet. But these changes since the 1980s um, have also, reflected changes in work, work styles, and lifestyles, which have encouraged sharp rises in consumption of much less healthy snack foods, soft drinks, fast foods, alcohol. And I always think that one of the most telling statistics for anyone interested in what's been happening to food consumption in China is that between 1985 and 2010, the average waste of an urban male in China increased from 25 to 30 inches. It tells such an extraordinary story. And it's clear that the government is very concerned about this as well it might be, and is trying very hard uh, to encourage people to improve nutritional standards by eating less, eating healthy and taking more exercise.
0: Well, thank you for clarifying that. I mentioned just now the popularity of imported ingredients, things like American beef and Japanese pumpkins. Do people want to eat those things just because they taste better than Chinese food? Or is it because they're a status symbol? Or is it because they're expecting a higher level of food safety if they buy imported food? What do you think is driving that trend? Taste and status do
1: have something to do with it for sure you know they've been significant factors in favor of imports but actually if if i were to um single out one factor it would i think be food safety by the 1990s people were becoming and the early 2000s people's people's concerns in china were shifting in a very significant way towards food safety issues. They were becoming aware of threats to health resulting from a whole whole raft of illegal practices in food preparation, food adulteration, the use of um, toxic food additives, the production of fake foods, worries about the contamination of food chains from you know, agricultural chemicals and other soil pollutants. There was this this infamous uh, incident uh, in, I think it was 2008, involving the production by a Chinese company of infant formula adulterated that that, that had been adulterated with a toxic chemical compound called melamine, which was added uh, to milk to falsify the protein content. And that led to the hospitalization of, I think it was more than 50,000 babies, uh, six of whom subsequently died. So following this, and there were other, other uh, incidents, other lesser incidents, but nevertheless concerning incidents, the government enacted new legislation that was designed to tighten regulatory control over food safety standards. But a major consequence of these incidents, especially that melamine scandal, was um, that consumers resorted uh, where they could to buying supplies from abroad.
0: So there's a political element to all of this, a geopolitical aspect, and that is that China is now importing vast quantities of food from countries which are not close friends politically, including the United States. Can you talk to us about how you see this political situation? I would say that on the whole,
1: China's imports actually have been quite modest, both in relation relation to the amount of food that it's producing itself, but also in relation to global trade. Uh, If I give you an example, China is the world's largest importer of corn. But if you look at its imports in 2019, I haven't seen data for 2020. You would find that its imports were less than two percent of its domestic output. So very, very tiny. But on the other hand, there are, you know, there are exceptions to that. I mean, if you look at sugar, if you look at beef, if you look at da- some dairy products, and of course, if you look at soybeans, then you you get a different uh, you get a different story, a very different story. You mentioned the You know, the political implications, the political dimension. And I think for Chinese foreign policy analysts, the political implications of China's involvement in in world food markets are paramount. Of course they're paramount because food can be used, often has been used, as an instrument of foreign policy. And one reads a lot these days about the weaponization of food. The bottom line for Beijing is that because of the, because of these political implications in pursuing its food security, trade must always be an adjunct to the main task, which is how do we how do we maximize food supplies from China's own resources in order to meet our, our food needs.
0: And as well as importing food. China's also been buying farmland abroad in countries like Australia, as well as in Africa and South America. What's your view on that situation?
1: Well, my view is that um, a, lot of, a lot of these reports, which you know talk about China buying up the world's farmland, um, are really overdone. And not claims, but the, the argument that China is buying up overseas land in order to compensate for arable land shortages at home, I find that argument to be really quite misguided. Um, yeah, it's perfectly true that in the, in the last decade, for example, China has acquired more land overseas than any other country in the world. And I think we're talking then about, I don't know, seven or eight million hectares of land having been purchased or leased by China during that period. But most of that land has been used for forestry purposes. Only about a million hectares of this land is for agricultural use. Now, 1 million hectares of overseas land compares with about 130 million hectares of arable land in China. It compares with China's grain sown area, which is about almost 120 million million hectares so even if all of this land which china has bought overseas even if all of it was used to generate food and if all that food were then shipped to china its impact on chinese domestic food supplies would actually be quite quite marginal
0: so to sum up then how should we read this new emphasis on self sufficiency in terms of food in china how do you think it's going to affect geopolitics i would prefer to see it
1: really as a renewed emphasis. Maybe a better way to put it is, it's a, it's, it's a kind of reaffirmation of an emphasis that in the case of food actually has always been there. For many years, uh, the overriding policy imperative for food security in China was that it should maintain, as Beijing used to put it, basic self-sufficiency in the provision of food above all in the provision of grain then about 10 years ago um, not least in the face of that explosive growth in 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 soya imports that we were just talking about the government announced a new policy that implicitly recognized a lowering of the self-sufficiency criterion and now and here's the renewed emphasis in the wake of this dual circulation strategy that's recently been been announced, we see the pendulum shifting again towards a somewhat higher degree of self-sufficiency. As for geopolitics, well, I suppose that this most recent return to, to if, if you like, a self-sufficiency ethos, it highlights the impact of geopolitics, which in this case, uh, is making itself felt through the interaction between trade tensions, particularly the um, the U.S.-China, as it's sometimes called, trade war, the interaction between those trade those kinds of trade tensions and bilateral flows of agricultural products. I suppose also th- thinking of the geopolitical dimension, I can't help being reminded of a book that was published in the in the mid 1990s under the title, Who Will Feed China? It was was written by somebody called Lester Brown. And in a nutshell, it argued that China's inability to feed itself in the future from the perspective of the mid 1990s would leave it no option, but to enter world food markets on such a scale as to push up prices and to squeeze those desperately poor food scarce countries in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and South Asia out of world markets. And the outcome as the book argued was that therefore China would in this way, and I quote, would starve the world. Well, that was a very, very pr- provocative thesis. And it has to be said that here we are 25 years on since this book was published and the fears which, it, uh, which Brown was, was expressing have proven to be very wide of the mark. China's food security challenge has so far remained very largely a domestic concern. And in, in, in response to the question in the title of that book, who will feed China, the very emphatic answer has been, and still is, China. It's China that's going to feed China. The simple reality is that because of the sheer size of its population, it's not the world that that's going to be able to to feed China. In the end, that's something that only China itself can do.
0: Bob, thank you very much. You've covered a lot of very interesting ground there. You can find out more about SOAS on our website. That's soas, S-O-A-S dot A-C dot U-K. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.